0: There's a real fear that I have that, that without migrant populations returning to Australia or being able to, to travel to Australia, you're going to lose that that diversity. Uh, and, it's, and it's what makes the fabric of Australia, I think, in, in so many ways. Um, and not just hospitality, I think in, 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 as a culture in general.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What drives success? Do we see success differently at different ages in our development? Does appetite drive it? Does it need to connect or the yearning for a greater happiness? Success changes from person to person, but what constitutes success can change for ourselves too. Simon Fenwick is the owner of Monsieur Pierre in Kyneton, Victoria. Simon, how are you going?
0: Really well, thanks, Huck. How are you?
1: Good. You've had an extraordinary career all over the globe and in some of the most influential restaurants in Australia, and you find yourself in regional Victoria. Uh, what what led to the move there?
0: Uh, having um, probably spent a lot of time traveling the world, it was one of those things that was uh, a great opportunity to settle down and find a find a place that uh, we could put my, put my feet down as such. Um, and... I guess it probably came to some some really similarities in growing up in Hobart, and uh, similarities to the sort of the close proximity to Melbourne and the, and the quality of life up here were um, were really a, sort of something that struck a chord.
1: Well, tell us a bit about that region because there's some really special restaurants in you know the towns near you as well as where you are, and some incredible producers as well. Uh, look, the food and wine up here is just.
0: You know, incredible, as you as you rightly point out, um, and individuals up here as well as families and you know, generational uh, farmers. Uh, there's there's an incredible array of diversity through here, and and not only in hospitality. You know, there's some incredible artists and, and musicians, and uh, it, it's it's a it's a real gem being so close to Melbourne as well. Uh, I think has probably created that that attraction. So, you know, you've got some some fantastic restaurants not only in now. That are sort of emanating out towards Trentham. Dalesford's always had a fantastic, uh, you know, mm. uh, food and wine uh, culture there as well. Um, but I think also to the awareness that's that's evolved over the period of time that we've, you know I've been living up here for 15 years now, and it's it's such a diverse um, change from where it was to where it is now. But there was always that sense of uh, clean uh, and 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 I guess country feel even though you're so close to the city um it's 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 had an incredible impact with uh you know young families particularly moving up here and the accessibility to to great produce and great wine um is is fantastic uh, I think some of, the, some of the biggest influences up here, you know, Annie Smithers and Alawuf Tasker and the likes, you know, in, in food. And, you know, you've got some amazing wineries, you know, Bindi and Kobor, um, Hanging Rock, mm. uh, and, and more and more just coming online, just small, passionate producers that have got such an incredible uh, affinity with the Tawar up here, as well as their, you know, desire to produce the best that they can.
1: You mentioned your early life in in Hobart. What was food like for you growing up, and, and what was the lure to get into the industry?
0: Uh, I, from a very early age, I was really fortunate that uh, I wanted to enjoy a life of of cooking. Uh, I don't know what it was. I had a pretty, pretty excellent upbringing and a very clean air. As I say, quality quality of life down in Hobart was was quite fantastic. Um, it wasn't, you know, neither my neither mum my or my dad were particularly um, extravagant, or uh, uh, I guess, not not coming from a heritage of cooking. Uh, Mum, Mum would try, uh, you know, a few of the women's weekly specials every now and then. Um, I can recall one of the worst meals I've ever eaten. I think was Mum wanting to do a uh, a chicken mole with, um, you know, the, the Mexican chocolate and all this sort of stuff. And this is this has got to be, you know, back in the late seventies. So she was quite adventurous. And um, anyway, I remember sitting down and sitting at the dinner table, and first mouthful goes in, and it was just vile. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't figure out what the hell she'd done. And she said, oh, I couldn't find any of that Mexican chocolate they were talking about, so I just used Cadbury dairy milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. As I say, it's just one of those tastes that I'll never, you know, you can't untaste it.
1: You imagined yourself uh, cooking for a career early on. What was it like? Do you have any stories from your apprenticeship?
0: Uh, look, I was very fortunate to get a uh, an apprenticeship straight out of Year 10, and it was, um, you know, Tasmania was pretty bereft of any kind of hospitality down then it was sort of pubs there are a couple of you know top-end restaurants but they weren't really you know looking for apprentices as such so i was really fortunate to be taken on by um jill and george muir and um you know their passion for seafood in hobart is still um you know been handed down Mm -hmm. to their children these days uh and you know the bulletin award for their little restaurant which was where i started um was quite a quite an award in the, in the day um, and to be able to have that opportunity there you know seeing them catching fish you know Jill's hospitality background came from Scots in London um, and George was you know a fishing family from South Africa and um, you know they'd done prawn trawling up in the Northern Territory and all this sort of stuff and settled in in Hobart and um, you know I can recall filleting fish on my days off they used to have this tiny little sailmaker's uh, cottage up in Battery Point and you um, They'd, they'd line in the inside of the kitchen with um, black plastic bags at the end of service. And then they'd pull up this tiny little you know Mazda BuzzBox you know, minivan out the back with all this fish, fresh fish that they just caught, and lug oh, it wow. up the back steps. Um, and we'd be filleting fish between the, 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 the empty hours of the restaurant. Um, and then come 6 o'clock in the morning, they'd just strip all the black plastic down, give it a bit of a washout, and come 7 o'clock, you'd be back in there for – setting up for the rest of the day so you know wow. there was some real real um, formidable and, and you know, quite you know crystallized moments at that point that, that really opened my eyes to yeah this was something I wanted to do and it was quite a diverse. Uh, opportunity then as well. Um, as I say, 1986 in Hobart, you could you could barely get a can of Coke on a Sunday afternoon. There was just nothing uh, around or open. Certainly not to the degree that the hospitality industry down there these days is is charging. Um, so there's, there's there was a lot then that I felt, yeah, this is really what I want to do. Um, it was a hard hard apprenticeship insofar as a lot of my mates you know didn't didn't follow through. They went through to university and all that sort of stuff. So you miss out on that. Mm-hmm. Sort of being being around your mates through those college years and out out partying, but you know the hospitality industry certainly um, certainly didn't shy away from showing me how to how to go out and party after work. So it was <laughs> it was it was one of those one of those sort of baptisms of fire for a, a, an eighteen year old or seventeen year old at the time. Um, and it was it was just just really nurtured in a family environment as well. I think that was the other amazing thing, you know. And it, it was one of the first strong strong you know, figures that I had in my career that really uh, set a foundation for what what was to come
1: you traveled to London at a pretty early age and, and cooked over there what did you take from that experience
0: uh, Huck it was almost a, a second apprenticeship it was it was quite incredible um, I was I'd, I'd traveled from Hobart so I'd completed my apprenticeship and um, had decided that I wanted to travel and it was around about the time of the Iraq war. So I got some really cheap round the world tickets and um, <laughs> was able to, able to fly, fly through sort of North America. I spent you know eight weeks backpacking through Mexico and sleeping in hammocks and 50 cent Coronas and plates of you know, soft shell tacos that were just to die for. Um, wow. And um, you know, had a, had a great time traveling and, and being footloose and fancy free for that nine, 10 months was awesome. Um, and then, had fudged my uh, fudged my uh, bank balance on a on a photocopied sheet of paper to try and get get into the UK because I knew that I was going to blow all the dough travelling. So trying to get from New York to London was um, was a, a bit of a, ha- a bit of a hair raising adventure. But finally got the visa to get into the UK, uh, and I had a mate who I was hopefully, hopefully hooking up to have some accommodation with when I got to London, and. Um, he wasn't there at the at the time so I'd spend a couple of nights you know just sleeping rough to try and wait until he's, you know phoning him every day to try and make sure that he'd be able to put me up and as it turned out finally got back um caught up with him and, and spent sort of the first three months um in in his company uh and he introduced me to the a lot of the chefs did a few stages um you know Pierre Kaufman and um you know Marco and finally was able to Land a position at La Caprice, um, just behind mm. the bench there uh, with Mark Hicks and um, Chris Corbin and Jeremy King, which was, as I say, just just an incredible experience in, you know, taking a foundation that, that was already you know solid, but you know, uh, I guess in a very early, fledgling part, uh, and being able to to consolidate what I'd learnt with such an incredible uh, group of chefs in, a, in an amazing kitchen, uh, with amazing clientele.
1: It was a renowned restaurant with um, celebrities from all over the globe going to it do you have any stories from that time
0: uh look there were um there was some there was some Doozies like ro- whenever royalty came through, it was one of those ones where they they'd send in the sort of the secret service, um, and and do a sweep of the building. They'd come and check most of the kitchen stuff, you know, check the food, check the cool rooms, that sort of stuff. Um, and it was there was quite interesting because Caprice had a bit of a, a, a rear entrance um, down underneath uh, the building, so people could actually. Come and go uh, without having to go through the front door, mm. um, and so there was, you know, as you say, a lot of lot of celebrities. I, I don't think I'll ever forget seeing Cindy Crawford walking down the, the main <laughs> main bar as I opened the door on the pass one night, and she gave me a wink on the way through it. I mean, I, you know, you just melt at that sort of thing at the age of twenty. You know? <laughs> but um, you know, look, it was it was quite incredible, and there, there, you know, a lot of what I learned, not only in the kitchen there, but also I think just. Just the heart and soul of what hospitality is was was very much something that I was um has has been imprinted in my my mind and my ethos um, from that time. And and Chris Corbyn and Jeremy King were just such consummate get, uh, hosts in, with their guests. Um, they had a, a booking policy where you'd have the A list and the B list on their on the bookings book, and they'd essentially hold the, the eight tables. Uh, that were around the front of the restaurant, all window tables facing out. And it was a, There's no view. I mean, it was a bloody cul-de-sac. It was was pretty crap view back of the back of the Ritz there. <laughs> and um, what they used to do was was phone the A-list, uh, and they'd manage their guest list um, of guests on those tables by phoning people and asking, "Look, you know, we've put a table aside for you at Caprice today. If you feel like coming in for lunch, just let us know." And they had this, this you know, collage, collage of people that they would then, you know, color the restaurant with essentially. Um, it, was, it was almost like painting and, and, you know, obviously socialites and, you know, magistrates who have affairs and all this sort of stuff. You know, there was, there was a whole raft of reasons <laughs> that they were managing this, this very um, tenuous <laughs> booking policy uh, to avoid sort of any conflict of interest or uh, personalities on the way. Um, so there were, there were those sort of moments and they, um, as I say, they were, they were the kind of elements in London early on that really sort of, I guess, you know, confirmed that that was where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and, um, yeah, just thrived in that environment. It was awesome.
1: You, you came back to sydney and it, that really sort of became a seminal part for you as well in regards to um a name making a name for yourself in australia and you worked with some incredible uh chefs and restaurateurs what were the real um integral moments and, and periods of time in sydney
0: um yeah look coming back was was really challenging to start with um It was, it was, you're kind of on this absolute rocket of a ride in the UK, and then you're back, and it was, um, it was an interesting time, too, because it was around around about that sort of the mid-90s where Sydney was building towards the crescendo of the Olympics. And there was a, a lot of building and a lot of um, sort of infrastructure and, and fantastic, um, you know, forward thinking about going in and planning for these, for these restaurants in the industry through that time. Uh, and there were some fantastic restaurants then that were... I guess, reflective of a lot of the, um, the the influences that I was seeing in the, U, the UK as well at the time. Um, so working at Restaurant 41, I, I came back, I did a little bit of time at Bras- Bayswater Brasserie and then um, was working with Liam and Dietmar up at um, mm. Restaurant 41, which was just absolutely at its absolute peak um, through those, those years. Uh, there was some incredible chefs went through there. Um, and and you know to be in a brigade with with such alumni, I am incredibly humbled. You know, looking back on it, um, insofar as how how that kitchen functioned and the, the the high level and the standards that were constantly expected uh, through that through that kitchen were just astonishing. Um, and you know, having heard some of the the chefs that have also worked with Liam and Deep Mara, you know it's it's rubbed off to everybody i think and the 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 level of um gratitude as well as uh respect that i've got for those two f- for what they did at that that particular time was incredible um you know there was some there was some amazing times there you know the private dining rooms with the with the packers you know, playing playing rooms off each other um, where, you can sort of, where they'd sort of have one group in, in one room and then another group in the other. And then they'd sort of, the, the two would meet in the middle and they'd discuss, um, you know, what was going on. <laughs> and then they'd go back and play the rooms off, um, you know, stuff like that, big, big power lunches, um, incredible, incredible building. Like the architecture and um, interior design of that place was mad. It used to, it was originally intended to be, Alan Bond's penthouse, uh, wow. and it, he'd had it decked out in um, the most incredible wood, you know, Thai silk and Western Australian timbers, uh, and and you know it was quite a phenomenal uh, space to be in. And uh, sitting up on the forty first floor there, and, you know, staff meals or all that sort of stuff was quite quite incredible. Um, and the kitchen camaraderie then, you know, was a, was a very much a European style kitchen as well. So having having had that influence of of European uh, kitchen environments, it was a it was a brigade that was run tight fast hard you know long hours but but very rewarding really rewarding um, so that was that was sort of the baptism back to sydney uh, and then um, I was fortunate enough to join Liam downstairs at Brazier Cassis and You know, having heard Mm. people like Maddie Kemp and Justin North, also having gone through those kitchens as well, um, you know, it was it was a great time. It really was a fantastic time. Um, Then from there, it was uh, I was employed down at uh, the new Benelong, which was Gabe Bilson and Yanni Kritsis' endeavour outside of Mm. the the first sort of step away from Barara Waters, and um, that was that was incredible. Yanni's just such an incredible, incredible cook. He is. You know, he is the most amazing technician. Um, he'd have you know varying levels of, um, I guess, uh, heat above the stove that was you know levered levered off the side of a of a, of a stove with a, a bent coat hanger, or he'd have everything on a time, so everything was working in twenty minute windows. Um, and and Yanni's. Capacity for for knowledge was just incredible. He had a, such a thirst for knowledge, and he, how he passed that on to his kitchen brigade was just amazing. Um, and it was difficult for them too, I think, for both Gay and Yanni in the, at, at that period too. That um, you know they'd had this seminal restaurant for so many years in the, in the bush, um, and then all of a sudden they were thrust into this. Um sort of middle of middle of the metropolis that Sydney was at that time, um in this massive mm. massive restaurant. um and uh, it was it was a challenge. It really was a challenge, i think for 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 Yanni to translate his food, but at the same time it was so welcomed um in his uh, capacity. you know he was such a beautiful, caring, um, nurturing person, uh, both to customers and staff that was um you know a real joy to work with.
1: It was during this time that you also won the Josephine Pinilla Young Chef of the Year award. What sort of impact did that have?
0: Um, yeah, look, it, it 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 was an incredible experience, but at the same time, there are a lot of chefs that were, I guess, in that level. There there were some incredible sort of mid level cooking going on in, in Sydney at that time. There were there were there were the the, the absolute, you know, archbishop, archbishops archbishops of, of Sydney that were were doing incredible stuff, you know, Neil and Yanni and the Doyles and, and, you know, a lot of those um, incredible chefs had, had driven and, and created so much wonderful opportunity for the city to enjoy great food. Uh and then there was these beautiful sort of second tier chefs and, and restaurants that were coming through that were that were really, I guess, evolving through, you know, working with these chefs and working with the the uh, the calibre of ingredients and the calibre of technique that was, I guess, defining what what Sydney restaurant style and Australian
1: restaurant cuisine sort of is today. You also um, worked with Damien Pignolet at Bistro Cur and um, were involved with Fuel when it opened next door to MG Garage as well. well what was all of that sort of like?
0: Yeah, look, there was some, there was some really um, incredible. I keep using that word, incredible, but thinking back now, it really was quite an amazing time in Sydney. Um, you know, there were there were, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of investment um, going on in the city, as I said, with the Olympics driving all that. Um, Damien again was a, an incredible uh, exponent of his. Uh, his craft. He was uh, an, an artist in, in his his vocabulary, his understanding, his technique, his French uh, comprehension of cuisine was second to none. Um, and to have the, the privilege of being able to work side by side with him um, through Moncure and, and Bistro Deux, um, which we opened up over in the um, Balmain Mm. shopping precinct there, um, was, was an amazing time. Uh, and we'd done a lot of little private functions and stuff as well. And um, that was sort of a, a, an incredible part of the, the the journey that I've looked back upon, you know, after so many years. Uh, you know, I, I look back fondly with the, the relationship that I had with Damien at that time because, you know, the, the, the Josephine Pinilla Award really was uh, about Josephine and her passion for food and her her wonderful, um, I guess, approach to hospitality, and and to have an insight to to that person firsthand from Damien um, was was an incredible experience, and it was a, a very privileged time. Uh, to be there, uh, it, it, it unfortunately the, the 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 greater plan that we had planned, we'd, we'd looked at trying to um, open up the Clock Hotel down in Surrey Hills was part of mm. the the process um, of the restaurants that he and Ron White were um, evolving at the time, uh, and the clock didn't eventuate. So um, at that point, it was um, it was pretty much I was. Jack of Sydney and had decided that I probably needed to, to go on and spread my wings again. The travel bug had kind of bit a little bit. Um, so wanted to go and see, see a bit more of the world.
1: What, what's, what's been the driving force for you? You've had so much success and and we haven't even touched on some of it yet because you spend a lot of time in London again and, and through Europe, but what, what is, what drives you?
0: Um, I think hospitality. It, it, it it's, it's something that comes from the heart, not the wallet. And if you love something so much that you do and it, it doesn't become work, it's actually uh, a lifestyle that that is part of your everyday fabric. Um, you know, you get up and you it's, – it's not necessarily about constantly looking for the best or the newest or the brightest. It's, it's about actually accepting that hospitality imbues everybody in some way at some point. During the day, uh, and if it's the simple things of, you know, a, a beautiful poached egg on a nice piece of toast for breakfast, or a you know, a fantastic, egg meal that you might have, or a, you know, an opportunity to go and see a, a new chef's restaurant, or something that that inspires you as far as a, a glass of wine that, that brings back evocative memories of a person or a place. Um, mm. I think uh, food and wine and hospitality is 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 my driver, um, and I've been really fortunate to be able to experience that in a manner that. Has, has evolved to be something that is me as opposed to something that I've really got to work hard at. Um, years of appreciation of mentored opportunities and, and time spent with like-minded chefs and, and guests and, you know, simple, simple market, you know, Expeditions that have crafted themselves all of a sudden into something that becomes so memorable because you've tasted a beautiful tomato or a cherry or a, 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 an experience where you've been able to cook bread, you know, next to a baker or a, a meal that you've had somewhere in the world that that you'll never, you know, untaste. Um, I think it becomes something that is a small um, part of my my world that creates a very big passionate driver. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a really simplistic approach. Um, you just find the beauty in the small things, and it's the it's the it's the wonder of those little things that can nurture you know us all through good and bad, and you know the ups and the downs. Um, but food is always a the baseline to my life. Um, as to the, the 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 ongoing passion of that, it's sort of coming through to. To pass that, my son's enjoying you know hospitality as well. Um, he's he's mm. having an opportunity to see you know the firsthand how how hard it is being in a hospitality industry, but at the same time how rewarding it is. Um, and and what it what it actually brings you know the richness to life that it can bring
1: um is is quite amazing. When you got sick of Sydney and you went travelling again, you went back over to London. Do you have any stories of that time that um, that you took away from your experiences there?
0: Uh, look, there were there were many. The, the second time back to London was for a four year stint, um, and had a, a sponsorship with the Sugar Club uh, at the time. So Peter Gordon uh, was over there, and um, that was that was again uh, another divergence in in sort of technique and you know French grounding that I'd had, and then all of a sudden this fusion twist was going. Um, and, at, you know, Peter was an incredible exponent at Fusion and still is, you know, does some amazing food still to this day um, and it was a great, great chance to see some, some dynamic, um, I guess, cooking that, that probably didn't necessarily sit in the same kind of vein that I'd been used to, but it was, again, all part of an experience that I was prepared to embrace and, you know, find find some, uh, some new ideas and new concepts that, that he was... An incredible champion of, um, but I guess the lifestyle in London at that point was was great as well. You know, there was the the nightlife and the the, the hospitality industry as a whole was a fantastic family in in that regard. Um, and was you know, I think probably working working hard in an industry that that you know. So I listened to one of your podcasts the other day, and someone was saying that it's you, you're forever in this role of being criticised as a chef. or there's always this scrutiny, there's there's mm-hmm. perfection that's always seeked. Um, and it's it's really interesting that, that you go through those phases of, of intensity in, in a service, and then you, you know, the after party or the blow off afterwards seems to be a, an incredible um, release. So there was a there was a lot of good times in, in London. Um, I was very fortunate to uh, have have done a few years at the Sugar Club, uh, and then opened a, a restaurant over in Maida Vale. And you know, going back to our earlier. Uh, sort of commentary around what sort of at the, the formidable years of my apprenticeship and, and early parts of my uh, influences. I'd, I'd always had this desire to open a restaurant by the age of you know thirty. And it was almost mm-hmm. like this this underlying um, sort of little voice in the back of my mind saying, you've, you've 30, you can do it by 30. And I ended up opening uh, a, a restaurant in Matervale that was an, an incredibly architectural shrine. Um, the food was probably a little bit fancy for the, for the time and – Got a, got a few interesting uh, reviews from the from the London critics. At that point, <laughs> uh, I think I was um, I was referred to as a backpacking gap year cook at one point, point. Um, and then you know we we, put, we had uh, we had kangaroo on on the menu. Um, and another, another critic put it down as saying it looked like some schoolyard boys had grazed his knee on the plate. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they were pretty savage. That pretty savage, um, you know, what doesn't what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Um, so there, there were those sort of ups and downs, and and I was fortunate enough to be working with a very dear friend there, Adam Carr, who um, was was an absolute rock in my world uh, throughout the, the the London years and beyond, and. Um, And he and I had a great time at the the Mate of Arlo's and um, from there I uh, finished up that tenure and was picked up with a a group of consultants who had a couple of restaurants over in Tel Aviv and um, that was crazy that was just absolutely nuts Um, this is kind of around about 2000 2001 so there was a Big intifada in uh, in the in the uh, Middle East at that point, and Israel had a, a lot of conflict, as it you know always seems to uh, and, mm. and ongoing, and um, was quite trepidatious about taking on the role. And they said, "No, no, it's okay, you'll be fine," um, you know. And I didn't know these guys from from a bar, so they'd they'd come into the restaurant a few times, but they'd approach me and said, "Look, you know, come out and have a look at it, and check out the restaurants and see what you think." So got on the plane from Heathrow and flew to Tel Aviv. And I'm not too sure if you've been to Tel Aviv, Huck, but the planes park about a kilometre and a half, two kilometres away from the um, terminal. And (laughs) so they, they, for obvious reasons, you know, the bombs and all that sort of terrorist activity that they're they're fearful of. Um, So you're ferried from the the parked um, jetliner on the tarmac back to the terminal by, um, you know, the big bendy shuttle buses. Anyway, first time I've ever been in Israel, Uh, step off the plane, hot day, like it's 35 degrees, just blistering, come down onto the tarmac and um, these two people in black suits, you know, men in black, literally, um, sunglasses, come up to me and say, Mr Fenwick. I said, yep. And they said, would you come with us, please? (laughs) And anyway, they took me over to this small little blacked out, mercedes minivan with a sliding electric sliding door that opened and there was another guy sitting in the back and <laughs> can you get in the tra- get in the car and i said um what about my luggage we'll look after your luggage we just need you uh, to get in the, get in the van wow and, um so anyway sitting between these two men in black and belting across the, the tarmac to the terminal um i then was proceeded to feel oh this is I don't know whether this is good or bad. I've, I've, I'll, I'll run with it for the time being. Yeah, uh, and then the guy in the front seat said, "Oh, we need your passport." And I'm like, oh, "Fuck, really? <laughs> you've got to be kidding me." Uh, okay, um, but you got what's going on? And they said, "Well, we'll get you through passport control, and uh, we'll meet you on the other side with your luggage. Everything's fine. Uh, the gentleman who you know you're coming here to work for have told us that you're here." And um so anyway they they dropped me on the, the arrival side of the um terminal. They said, Walk through this door. I walked through this door, popped out the other side, didn't do any passport control or anything. Wow. And on the other side of that there was all my luggage and the same guy in the front seat with my stamped passport saying, Have a nice day, Mr Fenwick and put me in a cab <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> So that was my introduction to Israel. It was, it was quite daunting, um, and so you know that was that was amazing. I mean, Tel Aviv is such a such a vibrant city. Um, you know, would love to have spent more time there. Um, their food scene, nightlife, um, you know, culturally diverse and rich. Um, you know the. the, the The interesting thing I think is that there's an amazing uh, relationship with the Palestinians and the the Israelis that work in Tel Aviv you know there's this uh, relationship that they're respectful of each other and this this sort of environment I certainly found that in kitchens when I was there um, consulting and uh, so the the three the three kitchens that they had there were were seafood and so I spent a bit of time um, sort of working between there and London Um, and then that same group Wanted to open up a, a chain of boulangeries in London, so they uh, we started apostrophe, which um, I think it's still around in London these days. There's sort of a few of them still kicking okay. around, um, and we started that over in Great Eastern Street um, as a as a sort of a coffee and bread. Type local um, little corner cafe that people could come and pick up the daily loaf, get a good cup of coffee and a, a pastry, and um, that that just kicked off huge. Um, set up training facilities and and you know got all the the systems in place for that, um, and uh, and then sort of in the midst of that, nine eleven occurred, and um, sort of with that realisation, sort of thought, well, it's probably uh, be safer to be back in Australia, so. Packed up and uh, and headed back to Melbourne.
1: You've been in uh, Kinderton for about fifteen or so years now, but um, you've you've had your uh, establishment for a bit over a decade. Tell us about creating that and um, and what you're doing there.
0: Uh, look, it was it was something that we and, and at the time, uh, you know, my wife and I set the business up um, with a passion for a French inspired uh, business and, um, you know, we both put a huge amount of effort and work into to getting something into a small country town that wasn't actually there. So we we opened the place and uh, we, we didn't have a coffee machine, for example. We just wanted to highlight the food and we started doing take-home meals. Um, it was really interesting. Post, post 9-11, there was a lot of um, sort of those – uh, what we see now is sort of the grab-and-go type food pop-ups that occurred at most of the train stations and stuff um, in the UK at the time. And um, we saw a real uh, opportunity for those take-home meals and, um, you know, people grab-and-go now is, you know, it's it's everywhere, obviously, for for, for the reasons that society and, and the pandemic has provided these days. But um, it was quite an early, um, an early part of our business model was to provide that. Uh, we'd done a lot of catering and felt that there was an opportunity for, for uh, off-site catering um, to be able to be available in the regions as well. Um, and mm. Kyneton's Kyrton, got a very strong um, history, you know, from from the Goldfield days, but also too has a very strong primary industry. and You know, the equine and, and farming industries up here are very, very strong. And, you know, there's a lot of pastoralists. There's a lot of, lists, a lot of um, you know, very, very quiet money within the region. Um, and we felt that there was an opportunity for – for that kind of element of the business as well. So there were quite a few diverse income streams that we, we sort of set out and wanted to sort of target. Um, and being in an old butcher shop right in the, the heart of town, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Kynon kind of has this sort of zigzag that comes in. So you come in High Street and then you go along Mollison Street and then you you arrive at Piper Street. And Piper Street's been the, the predominant one that over the years has um, – been heralded with, you know, ebbs and flows of antiques and restaurants and uh, the like, and it, it was a really interesting time because where we located the business at that point um, was kind of in between the, the local side of high street and the the tourist side of. Piper Street and we' were sort of right right in the middle of the day-to-day in mollison Street um, and felt that there was there was a real need for that kind of balance mm. between the tourist and the and the local um, and I think from that point onwards we, we were driven by um, expertise uh, the locals really uh, built a, an affinity with what we were doing and you know we still have customers coming to the window nowadays that are you know customers from 12 years ago so there's um, wow. there's this ongoing ongoing loyalty from from the customer base that we built, uh, and um, and the town's you know grown over those twelve years to a degree now that's um, you know quite amazing to see, and and it's, it's interesting back back then to, you know two thousand nine GFC and you know it, it was a big big risk at that point to, mm. to sort of step out and, and start a business, um, and you know there'd be a. Freeway between Melbourne and Bendigo that had gone through, um, maybe three or four years, uh, hadn't quite been completed when we moved up here. Um, but you're also mindful that you know once the freeway freeway goes past, um, you know everything outside of it tends to die off a bit. But um, Kyneton seem to have thrived and and grown from going from sort of strength to strength uh, with regards to that uh, over the years. So we we were really on the right side of the pendulum. Uh, and and two passionate young um, married couple that wanted to get on and, and build a business. That was that was where it started.
1: The last year and a half has been challenging for so many, and you know Victoria's had lockdown upon lockdown upon lockdown. What's what's been some of the opportunities and positives to come out of this experience for you?
0: Oh, Huck, It's been a hard ride, right? It's been a hard ride for everyone. Um, you know the 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 best things out of it. We I'll never forget. You know, thirteenth of March last year. Um, will be some some hell of a time that I'll I'll you know benchmark. Um, we've pretty much we we pushed all our cabinetry out to the windows. We're in a, an old butcher shop, so we pushed all the cabinets forward and. Um, fortunately, on a corner site, we were able to access windows down one side of the building. So we'd previously had, you know, during the summer, we'd done win, you know, window service, um, but you mm. know, Howling Southerlies through there was pretty cold during the winter, so we didn't really have it open frequently. But, but we've pretty much served out of that window the majority of the time for the last 18 months. So done a, wow. done, done a one-square-metre window for the entire 18 months. We didn't shut down. I said to the staff, you know, from that, that day onwards that – They'll drag me out kicking and screaming if, uh, <laughs> if they have to, but we won't close down. We'll never, never close down. Um, and I think there were a lot of a lot of Melbourne restaurateurs at that point that I was, you know, listening to and reading about that. That you know were were managing and dealing with the, that shock in, in in different ways. And you know, Ben Ben Shuri was a real you know. A real inspiration in his, you know, ethos and his approach, you know, to to take a, a world class restaurant like Attica and you know turn it into what he did in such a very swift and short space of time uh, to adapt and to survive it was just incredible um, and that same sort of ethos of never give up was was very much part of that part of that um, thinking at the time um, so we contracted a bit you know as everyone did uh, and it was until sort of jobkeeper kicked in so we sort of were, were traveling at about 21 22 staff um, early on, and then we dropped down to about half of that, and then with JobKeeper, we were able to bring bring staff back on. Um, uh, you know, the events side of the business, you know, has gone off a cliff as as has everybody's. Um, so we really focused on on what we could do to, to embrace the changes and and be hospitable. Um, you know, as, as hard as it is when you're distanced um, and you're doing it through a window, um, and and still maintain that that sort of same Pierre hospitality uh, was, was really critical. Um, so we, we retained all our staff um, and uh, have, have built the wow. business in, in, a, in a capacity now that, um, you know, once we get through the last, this, this you know, the dregs of this shit, I think, you know, the next six months to eight months, I think, um, we'll be through the through the end of it. Um, and then building now really to consolidate, to, to come out that sort of six to 12 months time, um, prepared and, and ready for the for the you know unveiling of new society um, coming out of lockdowns <laughs> all over you know, I think the, I think the Australian tourism market's still going to be incredibly buoyant I don't think we're going to be going to Bali or Europe for a time yet um, I hope I'm proven wrong but um, you know the local tourism markets just going to thrive and so we're, we're really working hard as a team to position ourselves and work towards uh, the, the successes that we've worked really hard at preserving through that that, that covid period uh, to come out the other side of it with some some successes in a in a, in a brave new world i guess
1: having worked uh, overseas in uh, in different countries and in um, in sydney as well as uh, regional victoria oh what is it that you love about australia's uh, culinary landscape uh the diversity
0: absolutely the diversity um, you know to to be able to enjoy global cuisine, um, and accessibility, you know, the accessibility of those restaurants or the ingredients or, or the locations, you know, there's, there's an incredible diversity of all of those elements. Um, and you know, some of the, some of the, the best, uh, characters that you meet through, you know, a simple meal at a pub or a grand meal at a, at a, at a dining temple, um, Mm. the the diversification of that I think is is what has made it and and it, it it it's really troubling you know the 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 immigration of of families and cultures to Australia that has crafted and, and consolidated that diversity um, is in is in real peril I think um, mm. there's a there's a real uh, fear that I have that that without migrant populations returning to Australia or being able to to travel to Australia, um, you're going to lose that that diversity, uh, and it's and it's what makes the fabric of Australia. I think in in so many ways, um, and not just hospitality. I think in, in in as a culture in general, I think Australians have a, a real uh, affinity to. That that wonderful, um, you know, having a great great live on street experience or a, a you know a, a great Thai experience at a restaurant. You know, the, the, the number of Thai restaurants that. that- Boomed in Australia, you know. I think there's there's a figure mm. of like two and a half thousand in a year from a, from a base of about 150. I think back in <laughs> the 80s, you know, it, the the explosion of that type of um, you know cultural impact is is quite phenomenal. Um, and enjoying the the, 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 the Chinatowns and the, the the precincts that each city has. Um, we're very, very fortunate to have that diversity and to have that accessibility to, to, to wonderful food at different price points too. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, it's, it's accessible to, to, to be able to have a great, you know, a great seafood meal or a great, um, you know, steak dinner. It's, it's, it's not like a prohibitive European or American price. Um, the prices obviously need to be uh, considered these days with the, the increasing ingredient price. But, you know, I think we're as a whole we're very fortunate and very lucky that we've got that accessibility.
1: As we move beyond uh, COVID, what is it that you're most looking forward to? Uh, A holiday
0: (laughs) (laughs) somewhere, somewhere that I might be able to put a flag up and and get a cocktail. Um, (laughs) And you know, Tassie's beautiful, but it just doesn't cut it. You know, it doesn't do anybody's tan any good down there. Um, No, look, I I don't know. I I think I'm I'm looking forward to having friends around a table. You know. I just crave that. I just miss that so much. Um, you know, being able to just have the simple the simple things return. Um, you know, having having my son, having have friends over that he can spend time with in the backyard, and you know, shared shared tables under a tree, um, and and enjoying good good company and laughter. Um, we need to laugh more. and I, I miss that laughter um, a lot. Um so I'm looking forward to those those shared table, you know, opportunities. Um, travel again. Uh, although I am really looking forward to seeing a little bit more, you know, closer to home these days, obviously. But um, you know, to be able to have a generation that, that you know can't travel at this point in time is is really mm. unfortunate and, and I'd like to see, you know, that, that opens up hopefully that, that there is a chance to travel again. You know, I'd love to go to Get to Japan I haven't haven't been there that was on a, a list prior to all this happening so um, you know there's, there's a lot of things a lot of things to look forward to uh, and a lot of positives to to focus on you know it's it's pretty easy to unfortunately get caught in that rabbit hole of doom and gloom and the cycle of news reports mm. and you know press releases and stuff and numbers but you know at the end of the day uh, hospitality I think has got such a vibrant Strong and diverse uh, group of people that are that are committed to it and and passionate about it. Um, we will be at that point, I think, when we can come out the other side of this, and there'll be there'll be people that will want to visit and and want to embrace those those uh, you know, opportunities once more. Uh, and I'm just hopeful of that.
1: Well, Simon, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch, and uh, we'll catch up again soon.
0: Huck, it's been a great pleasure and, and humbling, very much so. so. So, thanks for having me on.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au Stay safe and be well.